0: Our text this morning is found in John 1, verses 19 through 34. John 1, 19 through 34, beginning in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, Then why do you baptize? For you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, Who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. My name is Dave Farley. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF. Let me mention two more quick things. Uh, so far, we have over 40 people signed up for the membership class, which means we'll probably have around 60 to 70 people at the class coming up in roughly a week and a half, two weeks. So sign up quickly before it gets all filled up. Uh, and signing up really helps us plan for child care and food. Uh, but it should be a great class. Um, I also want to ask you guys to pray with us. If you read the newsletter this week, you'll, you'll know this. But we recently applied for a $1.1 million grant to help pay for our building. There's a foundation called the John C. Lasco Foundation on the East Coast, and this foundation is set up specifically to give money to churches like ours for new buildings. So our loan's gonna be roughly 1.8 million, so this would take care of a significant part of our loan. And we think we're a really good fit for this grant. And that would enable us to do all kinds of other things with that money, like plant churches and hire pastors and support missionaries. So please pray with us that, that we would find favor uh, in the eyes of the John C. Lasco Foundation. And we should hear back more um, next month. With that said, uh, let's pray once again and ask God for help. Father, we are so thankful for giving us so many reasons to sing this morning. Thank you. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, help us to be overwhelmed and amazed by his grace this morning as the word of God is preached, and we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen. During my teen years, my passion was tennis. This is back in the 90s. Uh, In tennis, greatness is measured in Grand Slams won. There are four Grand Slams, the U.S. Open, Australian Open, French Open, and Wimbledon. And growing up, the record was 13 Grand Slams. No one ever thought that record would be beat. And then along came my hero, Pete Sampras, who won 14 Grand Slams, making him the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And no one ever thought that his record would be broken. But records are made to be broken, and along comes this little-known Swiss guy named Roger Federer, and he has now amassed a whopping 20 Grand Slams, making him the greatest of all time. Roger Federer has pretty much broken every record there is to break. His amount of records is a record in itself. Go to Wikipedia to learn more about that. But to my great dismay, my utter chagrin, recently two guys have tied Roger Federer in Grand Slams. Rafael Nadal has 20 and Novak Djokovic now has 20. So now there are three guys with 20 Grand Slams. And as you can imagine, there's a debate raging right now in the tennis world about who is the GOAT. Who's the greatest of all time? I think it's Federer and my humble but accurate opinion. But that debate is a very, very live debate right now. But the question is, who's going to settle that debate? They all have 20 grand slams. So who's the greatest? And again, everyone is weighing in on this. But what if Jesus weighed in on this debate? That would pretty much settle it, don't you think? Well, Jesus makes a pretty amazing statement about the goat, the greatest of all time, in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus says this, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, that is, living under the new covenant, is greater than he Jesus says that John the Baptist is the greatest human being to live under the old covenant that is an amazing statement he was pretty great according to Jesus the son of God but that raises the question what makes John the Baptist the greatest of all time under the old covenant The Bible never specifically tells us, but our sermon text this morning in John chapter 1 gives us all kinds of clues as to why John the Baptist was the greatest person to live under the Old Covenant. What are those clues? In John 1, 19 to 34, we learn that John's humility made him great, and John's message Made him great. John's humility made him great, and John's message made him great. Let's look at those two things this morning in detail. First, John's humility made him great. Now, this brings us to John 1.19. This is a major transition in John's gospel. John is moving away from the introduction, now into the historical narrative, so our sermon text will get a lot longer uh, as John unfolds. But John 1.19a says this, And this is the testimony of John. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, every time the Gospel of John mentions the name John, it's always a reference to John the Baptist. And there's never been anyone quite like John the Baptist. Even secular historians from the first century wrote more about John the Baptist than about Jesus John was a crucial figure because he was the last of the Old Testament prophets and the first to herald the arrival of the Messiah. After 400 years of prophetic silence, John the Baptist explodes onto the scene in the desert preaching fiery sermons and his preaching was so good that literally thousands walked through the sun-baked desert for days just to hear this guy preach. If he was alive today, he would be a huge star on TikTok. He would have tons of Twitter followers. He would have a YouTube channel and probably several lucrative book contracts with a ghostwriter, of course. Now, his preaching was so successful that the religious leaders all took notice. Now, most people would think that John's success would go to his head, causing him to have a massive ego. Remember, this guy's the greatest preacher in at least 400 years. But John was very humble. How do we know? We see John's humility in his self-perception. Look at John 1, 19-20. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. John's ministry was having such an impact that people wondered, is this the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ? But John says, no, I'm not the Christ. God raised him up to point to the Christ, but he was not the Christ, the anointed one himself, 21a. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. The prophet Malachi promised that God would send the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, Malachi 4.5. Therefore, some mistakenly thought that John the Baptist was Elijah reincarnate. But John said, no, I'm not Elijah either. Although he did come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Luke 1.17. Back to verse 21 of John 1. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, the prophet was a reference to Moses, who was known as the prophet, Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 18.15. Some thought that Moses would come back from the dead to lead Israel. They were mistaken. So John says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not Moses. Well, then who is he? And John very humbly says, I am merely a voice. That's all I am. His self-perception was that he was just a voice. Verse 22 and 23. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John answers by quoting from Isaiah 43, 700 years before this event, and John basically says, I am a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, and I am merely a voice crying out in the wilderness. Now, when asked who he was, John the Baptist could have said a lot of things. (laughs) He could have said, I'm kind of a big deal. I, I was full of the Holy Spirit in my mother's womb. Jesus is my cousin. I'm such a good preacher that people walk through the desert for days just to hear me preach. Furthermore, I was chosen by God very specifically to herald the coming of the long awaited Messiah. And I'm kind of a big deal in Baptist circles. I've baptized a lot of people, in case you haven't noticed. John was a big deal. But what was John's self perception? John says, I'm only a voice. You can't see a voice. No one knows what a voice is wearing, how much money they make, what kind of car they drive. John was just a voice. That's all he was. I recently read this story. One evening, the great conductor Arturo Toscanini conducted Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It was a brilliant performance. At the end, the audience went absolutely wild. They clapped, they whistled, and stamped their feet, totally absorbed in the greatness of the performance. As Toscanini stood there, he bowed, and he bowed, and he kept bowing. Then he acknowledged his orchestra. When the ovation finally began to subside, Toscanini turned and looked intently at his musicians, and he whispered with great pathos, gentlemen, gentlemen, the orchestra leaned forward to listen to him. In a fiercely enunciated voice, Toscanini said, gentlemen, I am nothing. An extraordinary admission from a man blessed with an enormous ego. He then added, gentlemen, gentlemen, you are nothing. But Beethoven to Toscanini in a tone of adoration, Beethoven is everything, everything, everything. John the Baptist was just like Toscanini. He knew that he was nothing and that Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the Lamb of God was everything. Later on, When all of John's fans, thousands of them, leave John the Baptist's ministry, leave his preaching to go to Jesus, his disciples come to him and say, John, aren't you concerned? You're losing all these people. And in John 3.30, John the Baptist says about Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. John was just a voice. That's all he was. Now, I don't know about you, but so often, I want people to be impressed with me. We all want that, don't we? We're all subtly hoping that people will notice our accomplishments, our wisdom. Maybe you're hoping people will notice how much income you have or your Job title, or the car you drive, or the size of your house. Now, we know it's not good to brag, that's socially unacceptable, but we still like it when our accomplishments are noticed somehow, don't we? Or is it that just me? I don't think that it is. John the Baptist was so very different. He wanted people to be impressed with Jesus. He knew he was only a voice designed to magnify the worth and honor of Jesus. The Apostle Paul said it like this, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Our goal in life must be To make Jesus known. Our goal in life must be that we would decrease and Jesus Christ would increase. When someone says to you, wow, what a great business you've built, your response should be, Jesus has really, really helped me build this business. Can I tell you about him? Or when someone says, wow, your kids are so accomplished and so well behaved. You should say, in our weaknesses as parents, Jesus was strong. And he's the one who helped us raise these kids. Can I tell you about him? Or when someone says, wow, you seem to respond so well in the midst of severe trials. You should say, Jesus has been my rock. Can we talk about him for a moment. That was John the Baptist's mentality. John knew he was merely a voice to draw attention to Jesus. That's all we are. Voices. But What a privilege we have to call attention to Jesus. We see John's humility in his self-perception. We also see John's humility in his lowly service. Look at John 1, 24 to 28. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, that is these religious leaders going to check on John, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now, this is a reference to Jewish proselyte baptism, not new covenant water baptism, When Gentiles converted to Judaism, they were required in the intertestamental period from roughly 450 B.C. to the time of Christ, they were required to get baptized in water as a way to show they were purifying themselves because they were non-Jews. John answered them and said, verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, John's mention of Jesus' sandal strap was a reference to a cultural idiom. A disciple of a rabbi not only attended the rabbi's lectures, but that disciple became the rabbi's personal servant or slave, taking care of all the rabbi's accommodations, his food, his lodging, managing his finances for him. So when you were discipled by someone, you became their servant or their slave. But there was one thing that distinguished a disciple from a real slave in that culture. A disciple could do all kinds of things, was asked to do all kinds t- of Types of things. But one thing he was not allowed to do, or not supposed to be asked to do, was to take care of his disciples or his disciplers, his master's dirty sandals. That was off limits. That was simply too low. That was reserved for the slaves in society, not those being discipled by a discipler. But John the Baptist says in verse 27. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John is basically saying, I'm not just a disciple of Jesus. I'm not just a slave of Jesus. I'm lower than a slave. I'm not even worthy, he says, to take off his shoes and wash his feet. The ultimate act of humble, lowly service. John the Baptist was great because John the Baptist was very humble, committed to dirty, lowly service. And I think that's why, primarily, Jesus says that of all the saints in the Old Testament, John the Baptist was the greatest because he was the humblest. Nothing was below John the Baptist lowly service is true greatness. Luke twenty-two twenty-six. 26, Jesus says, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, that is the least prestigious, and the leader as one who serves. As I've said many, many times from this pulpit, humility is the chief virtue of of the Christian life. When someone is humble, pretty much everything else takes care of itself. A humble person asks for forgiveness, a humble person gives forgiveness. Humble people serve, humble people are thankful, humble people love others. Humble people trust God, not themselves, because they're humble. Humble people are incredibly joyful. Humble people love to draw other people out to hear about other people. Proud people, on the other hand, are constantly talking about themselves primarily. It's not very fun having a conversation with a proud person, is it? (laughs) Unless you just love to listen for two hours straight. On the other hand, pride is the chief vice. But here's the problem. Pride has a way of blinding us to its reality in our lives. So if you think you're humble, you're probably really proud. If you think this is not a problem for me personally, you're probably really proud. Your pastor is a proud person trying to grow in humility. And the older I get, the more I'm aware of pockets of pride in my life. Being defensive, argumentative, not wanting to forgive those are all manifestations of pride. Not being quick to serve in menial ways it's a manifestation of pride. My old boss used to say, "Dave, in church conflict, if everyone is humble, nobody gets hurt." It's going to work out. I I think one of the best marriage books besides the book of Ephesians and Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. So the third best marriage book is the book Humility by C.J. Mahaney. Because if both husband and wife are humble in the context of marriage, you're going to have a sweet marriage. If we're not humble, what should we do? Admit to God that we're proud. Ask God to help us see our pockets of pride in our lives. Ask God to help us humble ourselves. The Bible commands us to humble ourselves. Not just to be humble, but to humble ourselves before God's mighty hand. I think First 1 Peter 5.5. 5. The key to growing in humility is fixing our gaze firmly, and consistently on the cross, because there we see the greatest act of humility the world has ever seen. It was impossible for anyone to go lower than Jesus went on the cross. And furthermore, at the cross, we also see that God provides grace and forgiveness for proud people like me and like you. Why was John the Baptist so great? his humility made him great but that's not all first his humility made him great and second his message made him great his message made him great well what was john's message john's message centered on the lamb of god look with me at john 129 john writes the next day he saw jesus coming toward him and said this is john the baptist speaking Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in one sense, that message, the Lamb of God, really is the summary of the whole Bible. The Bible's message can be summarized in four words the Lamb of God. That's the heart and soul of the Christian religion. And we see this theme, the Lamb of God, all across the pages of Scripture. Let me just highlight a few of those wonderful places. During the period of the Exodus, the Israelites were told to kill a lamb and sprinkle its blood over your doorposts and doorframe. So that way, when the angel of death comes across your house, passes over you, he will not strike down your firstborn child Because a lamb was slaughtered in his place. What a wonderful picture of substitutionary atonement. During the period of the tabernacle in the temple, every single day a lamb was offered up on the altar reminding Israel that blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sins. During the period of the prophets, we read this incredible text, Isaiah 53, 6-7. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Who is Isaiah referring to? Jesus, 700 years beforehand. During the ministry of the, of the apostles, Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Then, during our eternal rest in heaven, you and I will sing about the glory of the lamb 24-7. Listen to Revelation 5, 12 to 14. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped now why does this matter the arrival of the lamb means the end of the sacrificial system the arrival of the lamb means the angel of death will pass over you and me The arrival of the Lamb means the suffering servant has finally arrived. And the arrival of the Lamb means the sinless substitute has arrived. The arrival of the Lamb means that all of our sins can be washed away. The arrival of the Lamb means the power of sin has been broken decisively in us, which means we no longer have to be enslaved to sin. The arrival of the Lamb means that broken, wounded sinners like me and like you can be adopted by God and may join heirs with Christ. So when John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you and I should all rejoice because our lives will be forever and eternally changed. Jesus Christ was much more than a good person a great moral teacher, a wise religious sage, a great philosopher, a worker of miracles. He was all those things. But much more significantly, Jesus Christ was the Lamb. And through his shed blood, our sins can be forgiven. Now the story is told of a man who was hiking in the Swiss Alps. He was staying in a lodge during the day, or during the night, and he would go out during the day and hike around all by himself. He was out hiking, and it was getting colder and colder and colder and darker and darker and darker. And he began to panic because he had lost his way. And he thought for sure that he was going to die alone and frozen. Simultaneously, the person running the lodge realized that one of his customers was out there in the mountains, and it was getting very dark, and so he was worried about his lodger dying, and so he sent out his very best rescue dog to go out and find this guy, and the dog sniffed around for a long time, and he finally found the body of this half-dead, half-frozen man. This dog was a well-trained dog, so the dog began to nudge the man with his nose, and then he very softly uh, bit the man and began to shake him to wake him up. And because the man was half asleep and half frozen to death, he pulled out a knife, thinking the dog was a wolf, and he stabbed him. The dog somehow escaped, and the dog whimpered back to the lodge, bleeding the whole way. When the dog arrived at the lodge, he died. He died. But the owner of the lodge put together what happened and he went out and he followed the blood trail and he eventually found the man who was dying and he brought him back to the lodge, warmed up his body and brought him back to life. So the dog was dead but the man was alive. The man's actions killed the dog but the dog's blood saved the man's life. It was our actions that killed Jesus whenever we sin. It's like we're taking a knife and we're stabbing him. Yet it was his blood that brought us life. His blood that washed away all of our sins. Now, some of you have been Christians for years, and you're thinking, Dave... I know all this stuff. I've heard this before. But are you living like it's true? Are you living like all your sins have been forgiven? Are you living like the power of sin has been broken in you? Are you living like a beloved child of God? Are you living like you have been freed from the tyranny of slavery the sin, the death, and the devil. It's very easy for you and I to become very familiar with grace and not be amazed by the Lamb of God. If you've lost the wonder, ask God to help you. Ask God to restore the wonder by revealing your sins to you and revealing God's grace to you. We're never going to be amazed by grace unless we understand the depravity of our souls. Others of you know about the Lamb, but it's not enough to know facts about the Lamb of God. That will not save you, You must personally trust the lamb to save you. Have you personally said to Jesus, Jesus, I admit that it's my sins that killed you. And I admit that I need your blood to wash me clean. That's the only way to be reconciled to God. You cannot be saved because your parents believe in the lamb. You must personally believe in the lamb. Others know all about the gospel, but they keep it to themselves. You and I must follow the example of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was excited about the Lamb. Therefore, he proclaimed the Lamb of God to all who would hear. And you and I have the tremendous privilege of telling a lost and dying world about the Lamb of God. John's message centered on the Lamb of God. In addition, John's message centered on the Son of God. Look at John 1, the 32 to 34. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now there is so much we could unpack in these verses that would take us hours. But let me simply say this about these three verses. Um, John is describing what happened when Jesus Christ was baptized. Which raises questions, why was Jesus baptized? Wasn't he sinless? Yes, he was sinless. More than likely, Jesus was baptized as a picture of the baptism that he would endure on the cross when he died as the sacrificial lamb of God. Furthermore, in Matthew, we read that Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what happened when he was baptized? We know from the other gospel accounts that when Jesus went into the waters of baptism, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove... On him, why a dove? A dove was a picture of innocence or purity in the first century. When that happened, when the dove said it on Jesus, by the way, the Holy Spirit remained permanently on Jesus, but when that happened, God the Father said in a loud voice for all to hear, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And there we see a beautiful picture of the Trinity. God the Father God the Spirit and God the Son, all existing simultaneously. This destroys the doctrine of modalism or Pentecostal oneness. God does not exist as one person in three modes. Here we see Father, Son, and Spirit, distinct persons in one God. But the point of this passage is simply this. John is simply testifying for all who will listen that Jesus is the Son of God. He heard that from God the Father's voice, and he knew that from Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is the Son of God, which means that Jesus is God. And if Jesus is God, then he has the power to redeem us to forgive us and to change us. And John was excited about proclaiming the life-transforming power of the Son of God who was also the Lamb of God. And I want to have more of John the Baptist's passion. And I want you to have that too. And we'll talk a lot more about evangelism in next week's wonderful passage. But the point here is simply this. John is testifying that Jesus is the long-awaited Son of God. And he saw that with his eyes in Christ's baptism. So what made John's message so great? It centered on the Lamb of God and centered on the Son of God. And although you and I are not John the Baptist, he was very unique For many reasons, we have the same great privilege of proclaiming the same great message. But so often, so many of us cower when opportunities arise to talk about Jesus. Fortunately, God forgives and God empowers the same spirit that permanently remained on Jesus from his baptism forward, remains on us as followers of Jesus. And he will give us power when we ask to help us tell the world about the Lamb of God and the Son of God. Well, back to where we started. It's somewhat hard to to believe that if all the Old Testament saints, John the Baptist was the greatest. Really? What about Abraham and Moses And Elijah, Esther, and Ruth, King David, Jeremiah. There were some really, really amazing people under the Old Covenant. But Jesus clearly says that John the Baptist was the great. Why was he the greatest? John's humility made him great, and John's message made him great. And here's the good news. Motivated by grace and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we too can be great in God's eyes as we humble ourselves before him and before others and as we proclaim John's message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of this great saint and Lord we confess that we fall short in both these areas we are not as humble as we should be and we don't proclaim the message like we should but we're so thankful for the Lamb of God who washes away all of our sins Lord I pray that knowledge of the Lamb of God knowledge of his atoning sacrifice I pray that that would motivate us this week to humble ourselves and to proclaim the message of Jesus. Lord, help us to that end. May this church be marked by humility and bold proclamation of the gospel. Lord, we need supernatural help to do both these things, so help us for your glory.